Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, as always, joining you this time from within the Lace office. And I have a fabulous, lovely assistant with me today. It's our Director of Talent uh, in our practice, Pavan. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Are you excited? This is your first pod, isn't it? It is. My first podcast ever. First podcast ever. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go easy on you. And I'm sure our lovely guests will go easy on you as well. And our guest today is Michelle Jimmer. She is a keynote speaker and a gender and ethnicity pay gap consultant. And she's uh, done some work also with the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So, Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really, really great to have you on. So you and I spoke oh, a few weeks ago now, particularly around pay and pay reporting, because that's a topic that, as we know, in 2023 has been quite a hot topic for a lot of businesses, large organisations that then have to report on their pay gaps. And you know, there's gender and there's uh, diversity elements to that as well. And so we decided, let's jump on the pod and let's have a little chat about it. So we're going to do that. But before we do that, let's do a little bit of a check in on yourself for any of our listeners that perhaps haven't heard of you or know your background. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I've obviously introduced yourself in as a as a keynote speaker and, uh, and a pay gap consultant, but just tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work you do and the clients that you work with as well. So my name is Michelle Jimmer and I'm pay gaps consultant. I founded a pay gaps consultancy called Equality Pays which essentially is designed to help organisations make sense of gender pay gap reporting and to help them understand what the data is telling them about the organisation and then to create um, strategies and action plans that actually work for them. And as you said, before I did work at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, so that's how I kind of got started in this space. Prior to that, I had no knowledge of anything to do with equal pay, anything to do with pay gap, but I found myself in this role and it's been very interesting in a lot of ways. I've been able to gain some fascinating insights into what makes organizations tick. And as a result, I've worked with you know a lot of clients from lots of different backgrounds, including the kind of engineering, publishing, organizations within the financial services sector. So yeah, it's um yeah, it's been very interesting so far. It's such a huge problem. And I guess the transparency legislation is showing us just how big the gender pay gap can be in some industries. Why do you think the problem still persists? I think the problem still persists because it's inherently a structural issue for a lot of organisations in terms of how they have set themselves up, the processes that they have, the policies that they have, and whether there's alignment between the things that organisations say that they will do and the values that they stand for, how that actually works in practice. And I think it's fair to say that for a lot of organisations, there may be this feeling of, well, we've had pay gap reporting for so long and we've tried so hard and we're not seeing those changes happening. But I think it's because, you know, organisations do need to really look at what those structural problems are, which actually feed into why they have a pay gap in the first place. So looking at things like your recruitment processes, your promotion processes, how are you retaining people, who's leaving you the most and why is that? So when we talk about pay gaps, yes, we're looking at the, you know, the average 
difference in earnings between men and women, but we're also looking at representation within workplaces and we're also looking at workplace culture. And those things take, you know, a lot longer to address than I think most employers kind of anticipate. It's really interesting. And this is a particularly quite a pertinent topic right now as we are in 2023. Obviously, we're just coming towards the end of 2023 and there's been quite a bit of regulation. There's been quite a lot of publicity as well, particularly earlier on in the year. There was a BBC report which talked about eight out of 10 businesses pay more men than women, you know, with a national difference of 9.4%. So a lot of organisations are looking at this. I want to look a little bit about that sort of organisational size difference and just get your thoughts on that and how this differs for businesses that are looking into this. So can you just give me some reflections? Like, how do you think this is differing by size of organisation? How much uh, do businesses that you talk to, how much do they find this a challenge based on their organisational size? It's a big question to ask. And I, and I guess the, the most logical kind of response to that would be that, you know, that the larger the organisation that you have, the more kind of embedded the, the problems mm. are because you're bigger and because you've kind of like been around for longer as well. But, you know, but ultimately, you know, we see that the issues tend to be the same. I mean, if you were to look at any kind of gender pay gap report, so many organisations will say the reason why we have a pay gap is because we have less women within senior roles. So, even though you might be an organisation that has 250 people or you might be an organisation that has 10,000 people, there's a good chance that because of the kind of structural ways in which workplaces um, develop, that you have very much the same issues, but the problem is kind of exacerbated or might seem bigger or might cost more to fix because you're a much bigger organisation. What do you think the steps that traditionally male-dominated industries are taking to reduce the gender pay gap? Is that having an impact on things like talent management and recruitment? Yeah, so in the last kind of few years, we've seen a, a real big push, particularly in male-dominated sectors, to address the reasons for their pay gaps. And obviously, them being male-dominated, it would have been to do with the fact that they have a lack of women within the workplace in general, but then specifically the lack of women within certain roles. So it would tend to be the higher-paid roles, whether it's you know, IT or finance or going into the C-suite. So for a lot of male-dominated sectors, their first kind of port of call for them will be around the recruitment piece so looking at how can they make themselves to be an attractive option for you know young girls and women who previously probably would never have considered going into that sector or going into that organization and so for example i'm working with an engineering client at the moment and they talk about the fact that you know the talent pipeline in terms of gender diversity just isn't there so they're having to think about, well, what can they do to start kind of filling that pipeline? And it might be that they don't see any progress for the next three or four years, but it might come to fruition within 10 years. So particularly for those kind of male-dominated organisations, this is what they're focusing on. But as we know, the talent pipeline takes time to kind of grow and progress in the way that you want. So you have to approach it from... The kind of long-standing viewpoint rather than thinking oh we'll just be able to hire lots of women and this will solve our pay gap because you know unfortunately it doesn't work in, in that way so for most of those male-dominated organizations recruitment 
and filling that pipeline with much more gender diversity is usually their, their first port of call as well as them thinking about the women that they do already have about mm. how how are they being supported in terms of retention but also career progression so trying to move people from particularly uh, female heavy roles like admin roles and how do we support them into think about tech roles or finance roles or roles where they tend not to be in numbers but those roles that have much more kind of career longevity as well as, as paying more ultimately. I totally understand your point. It's a it's a long term game, but in the short term, how are organisations upskilling leaders to remove bias in some of the practical reward decisions? Yeah, and it's a, it's an interesting question because some of the clients that I speak to, it, there tends to be a lack of kind of a guide for individual hiring managers, line managers in terms of how to make those decisions. So there seems to be a lot of people going on gut feeling or what they think is is fair to award one person over another. And so a lot of the conversations I've been having with companies is about highlighting all the different touch points where pay gaps can creep in. And a really big one is in those reward decisions. So who Mm. gets hired, how much they get hired for, what their bonuses look like, and then who gets promoted. And so what we're starting to see is organisations realising that actually these are conversations that don't happen very often and there isn't much guidance so that they need to line managers, hiring hiring, uh, managers, need to have some kind of a philosophy or framework to work towards so that when they're making those decisions, they've got something they can look at and say, okay, well, if this person asks for X and we were to say yes, how is this going to affect our pay gap? Is this going to be an equal pay problem? Is this affecting our gender balance? So it's about taking a step back and making sure that those processes are in place and that line managers understand what the process is, understand the purpose behind it, and can go for that you know, advice when they're not sure around what to do instead of just leaving it to individual managers' decisions that they make by themselves. Because that that is where quite often we see pay gaps coming in because we've trusted people to just kind of get on with things. And it's not that they've necessarily inherently done things on purpose, but when you don't have the framework to follow, this is where those kind of biased decision-making can come into play. Really interesting, actually, and I'd actually like to get your view on this, Pav, as well as as Michelle's, because we talked and we talked before we went live about the cultural side of it. And I wonder how much, if you're working in an organisation where you feel empowered, your culture allows you to feel empowered to be able to make those decisions. Like, how valuable can that actually be? So I'll start with Michelle, then I'll get your thoughts, Pav. If that's all right. I think it's really, really valuable because it gives people that sense of ownership around how they show up as leaders and how they make decisions. But it also gives them that comforting sense of, this is a decision that I'm making, but I know that this is backed up by the philosophy that we have, by the framework that we have, by the training that I've been provided with. And I know that I can, you know, I can go and troubleshoot this with somebody who understands this as well. I remember talking to um, one organization who were losing people left, right and center. And whenever they asked the people, well, why are you going somewhere else? They were told, oh, because that company has pay transparency. I know how to progress. I know what's on offer. I know what's possible. And the line managers would be stuck in this position of not knowing how to talk about how they could try and retain them. And so 
what was happening was they presented with this information that was you know costing the business but the line managers didn't have the skills to hold these conversations about paying reward and compensation and say right this is what we could offer you this is how we could make this work they just didn't have those skills and so they were losing people so you know providing line managers with that support is you know it's not only personal development it's professional development for them as well one of the things that pay transparency enables an organization to do is prove some of the things that they say about their employee value proposition and their culture. It acts as a powerful proof point that I am going to be transparent about pay and I'm going to show you how you can get to the next level or get a pay increase. And that kind of really nicely links to things like performance management and talent management, but it's a holistic discussion, no longer happening at by the side of someone's desk or at the water cooler, it, it feels very much the good thing about transparency. So let's um, focus in on this transparency stuff, actually, because I think this is really, really interesting. And actually, it's topical at the moment. We are at the time of recording. It's October. And I've seen a couple of articles, even this month alone, talking about organisations that are, particularly in the UK, that are disclosing individual pay ranges. And there's still quite a bit of reticence for it. And I think, again, it it must be quite difficult for organisations to feel comfortable to actually physically do that. So I want to get some thoughts uh, from you, Michelle. And then, yeah, if you want to build on, on that path at all, just, just give us some thoughts around, you know, some of the challenges that organisations have. And I guess some of that is culturally, but actually it's some of it almost societal because the piece that I'm referencing, which was in HR magazine, was saying that it was a study that was conducted, it was talking about UK companies only, saying that 16% of companies are disclosing individual pay to their employees, and the majority are considering doing so in the future. So I guess my question is, do you think that step change is happening? Because it's a very different, it's a lot different from doing it at the moment to considering to do it, to then actually doing it, isn't there? Yeah, and the thing about pay transparency is that I think a lot of people think that pay transparency is only that everybody knows what everyone else is getting paid. And and that strikes a lot of fear <laughs> in organisations because, you know, the number one concern that organisations have is that it's going to create kind of disunity and that people are going to have lots of negative feelings if they find out that, you know, the blog sat next to them is being paid more than they are. But the thing about pay transparency is that it's actually a spectrum. So you can go from having no pay transparency whatsoever all the way through to everybody knowing what everybody's paid. And then there are several steps in between where individuals get like a, a compensation sheet every every year to explain where they are in the market. You have you know your pay philosophy, which explains how the decisions around your pay have been made. So there is actually a lot of choice for employers to decide on that spectrum. And I think there are about four or five different points. Where do they want to be? So you can look to see where you are now and make a decision and say, okay, well, actually, we would like to get to point four. Point four works for us. And then you can work backwards and kind of figure out, well, how can you do that? So I think that's that's the first thing to say. And the second thing is that, you know, we are, the concept of pay transparency hasn't just kind of come out of nowhere, and it's not just the UK that's considering this. So at the moment, the, an EU um, pay transparency directive has been passed, and it's, come, it's coming into, into legislation. So a lot of European businesses in you know, the EU member states 
are having to change the way that they approach pay transparency. And so one of the things is that they have to put the salary ranges on the job advert, they have to do action plans, you know, there's, there's a lot in there. And some UK organisations, even though we're out of the EU, may think, oh, well, that's happening over there, we don't have to deal with that. But the reality is, is that we, you know, we live in a globally connected world. And if you have, you know, global supply chains, and if you have different offices, and you have, you know, employees, you know, working remotely for you from different countries, etc., there's going to be a ripple effect. And so I think that there's going to be, you know, in the future, this expectation for a lot of UK employers, even though it's not legislation here, to consider what they can do voluntarily so that they are in alignment you know with other offices and with other organizations particularly if they want to do trade on a global scale how much responsibility does hr have in driving this with the business yeah so obviously you know we talk about pay transparency and you think okay this is a hr issue which i do think is true but it's one of those things like many issues within organizations it's not the sole responsibility of hr you know there does need to be that kind of group collaboration and accountability, you know, with reward teams, with the finance team, you know, having a senior sponsor. This isn't something that I think the HR team should be left to drive on their own because there are so many kind of repercussions of it where so many kind of consequences to doing this work. And I think it's an unfair burden for HR to be driving this by themselves. By all means be the catalyst. You know, this is this is an area that's in your wheelhouses and your expertise. But for me, I think it's about seeking ways to collaborate with other teams and departments within the organization, because like I said before, there are, you know, there, there's a ripple effect that happens elsewhere. So it's about you know, getting your comms teams on board, you know, working with your reward team to figure out what this means, you know, having that senior sponsor to who's responsible for driving that change and spreading that accountability across the organization. I think this is a really interesting one. I don't know what you think about this, Perth, but for me, it's because it's quite a, obviously it can be quite a sensitive topic, you know, talking about pay transparency. Perhaps there's that sort of reluctance to, but if as an organisation you are, as we talked about earlier, empowering your line managers to really embrace this, if you're, as you just said, Michelle, like if the comms teams are really trying to take hold of this and say, do you know what, this is an opportunity for us, even from an EVP, from a from a talent attraction perspective, you know, this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our transparency as a business, which then becomes an attraction tool. I think that's really, really fascinating. And as, as you mentioned, Pav, like how much does this sit with HR? I think HR needs to, because it's people related, HR needs to be almost driving it, but it's not their sole responsibility, is it? No. And this is where that overlap between HR and being a line manager gets really blurry because when we talk about pay, we are talking about something that's inherently personal. And as line managers take more responsibility for managing their teams, their people and driving that culture, they will also be in a better position to have conversations about pay, about banding, about the next level. So I think it's, as you say, empowering the line manager with the right skills to do this, but it's personal. It needs to be managed carefully. So hence why there's that blurry line at the moment, but hopefully going forward, very much driven by the business. I do remember reading that most organisations don't provide any kind of training for their line managers around how to hold these conversations like pay. But that's in kind of direct conflict with the time that we live in because it's a really high employee value proposition for so many people. I, I read a stat that said that 58% of people would consider moving jobs for pay transparency. 
So it really is a retention tool, and it's also an expectation that employees will have of their organizations and line managers that they know how to have this conversation, but also mm. that they're ready and equipped for it. So it's not going to be something that comes as a surprise, and that it's going to be handled well, because even if you're in a position where you have to say to someone, well, you know, your performance hasn't, you know, met the mark for you getting a promotion, for example. You know, having somebody that can deliver that in a professional way because they've had the skills and training will make all the difference. It could be the difference between somebody deciding to stay and deciding to go. So I think there's a lot at stake here that possibly organisations are not quite ready for. You know, the focus is just on... Hey, Chad, about see how that's going to work, but you know, upskilling line managers is going to be you know, a really a key aspect of that to ensure that they can that they're able to do their part to try and retain as well as attract more people into the organisation. Yeah, this is really interesting, and it's an interesting topic. I mean, we've only got probably another five or six minutes to go through, but we could really delve into this because, as a marketer, the first things I think about when I think about pay transparency are things like, you know, this is. It's it's part of a, a proposition that you can put outwardly to the market as a look. This is a this is who we are as a business, and this is this is almost part of our EVP. But then there are so many other nuances, like you know, how are you training people to be able to deliver that? I think it's a really really fascinating one, Michelle. When we had a sort of pre chat beforehand, one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was quite interesting was how um, sometimes people like yourself feel like you're a bit of a therapist when you're talking to your clients so i just wondered if you can maybe just expand on some of that just kind of elaborate for our listeners yeah whenever i get on calls i feel like they should you know i should have like a couch in my zoom background and tell people to kind of lie down and tell me their issues the reason i i said that is because i finds that you know the topic around pay transparency pay gaps equal pay like you said before is very emotive but because it's out there in the public kind of ethos, it can get to be a very judgmental space. You know, everybody's able to look at people's data. They can go back and look over the last few years and you can, you know, write something on LinkedIn and say, this is a terrible employee because their pay gap is X and it hasn't changed over the years. And I think a lot of um, kind of HR managers and directors who are responsible for producing the reports and action bank, et cetera, are feeling that pressure because they don't have the internal support that they need to make the changes required. And there's this big expectation that this is your piece of work, this is your area, you need to fix it. So by the time somebody comes to me looking for help, because they try to do things by themselves, it's a release for them. And, you know, I give people that space to be honest. And I say, well, what have you tried? And they'll tell me what they've tried. And then they'll tell me about, you know, how they felt during the whole process and so that's so when I said that I feel like a therapist that's what I meant but you know people you know they do need that space to decompress and to be honest about what isn't isn't working because don't forget when you have your payback reports you never put down the challenges and the things that have all gone wrong but somebody's tried those things and they have gone wrong and so you know having that kind of first call with me is an opportunity to be honest and say well look this is what we try to do and it was a disaster because of X and I'm feeling quite stressed and feeling the pressure and let people get that out of their system and then we start to work on okay let's think about the other things they need to do yeah and I bet one of the the key things because if I'm a if I'm somebody sitting listening to this podcast right now one of, and one of the things that we're constantly talking about at LACE is 
how are you measuring your success? Like, how do you define what good looks like and what best practice looks like? So can I just get a couple of thoughts? Because we've got a couple more minutes and I'm not going to exit without, I know you've got a question coming up in a second, Pav, but I just wanted to get that quick one in there before we wrap up today. But yeah, measuring success, like what advice would you have for our listeners who are listening to this and thinking, what does, how do I start to define that? What does best practice look like? I love this question because so far so many people think that success only means that your pay gap has dropped from X percentage to X percentage and that anything else is a complete failure. But the reality is, is that, you know, your pay gap figure is only one measurement about your organisation. It's not everything. It tells you something, but it doesn't tell you everything. And, you know, you could be in a situation where your pay gap hasn't shifted but you might have implemented a great return to work for parents that have taken time off and your retention levels might have gone up. Or you might have partnered with a new recruitment agency and they have sent you a really diverse candidate list. And from now on, you're going to be using them. You might have, I don't know, overhauled your promotions process and now it's really transparent. Those things might not be reflected in your pay gap figure, but they are still successes. So for me, the thing that I think is super important is to understand your data in context, but also to apply it to the context of your business. You know, you can have two companies that have the same pay gap figure, but their measures of success will be completely different because their business models are different. They're different businesses, they're in different sectors, but yet their pay gap figure is the same. So it's about understanding for yourself, what does successful at company A look like? Because this is where we were, and this is how we have improved. So it really is about, not fixating on the pay gap figure and looking for other ways to measure success that are actually meaningful for you and making a difference to your workplace culture. Such a powerful point. I know we've got yep. to go, but final question to you, Michelle. What does utopia look like? We were earlier this year talking about ethnicity pay gap reporting. I guess what's next? Good for me looks like moving from this that race around figures to looking at equitable career progression. So the ultimate question is always, what does career progression look like in your organisation and is it equitable for everybody? And if you can answer yes, then that's mm -hmm. utopia. <laughs> that's utopia for me in, in a nutshell. Love it. Absolutely fantastic. Michelle, do you want to just let our listeners know where they can find you? I'm assuming obviously you're on LinkedIn, but any other sort of channels that uh, people can find you if they want to connect? Yeah, so my favourite channel, like I say, is LinkedIn. I'm on there quite often. I also have a podcast called Beyond the Pay Gap Figure, where I talk about you know, pay gaps in, in much more detail. And I have a website, which is equalitypays.co. So do feel free to reach out to me on any of those meetings. Lovely. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. That's absolutely flown by about 30 minutes, but really, really great to have a, uh, a good chat with you today, Michelle, and to talk all things pay gaps and some of the changes that, or some of the things that we've seen this year and also what the future holds as well. So on behalf of obviously myself, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been lovely having you on. And Paz, thank you very much for uh, helping you to steer this good ship. <laughs> thank you. See you next time. See you next time on the HR on the Effective Podcast. Bye-bye.